I used to believe for a long time that fear of death was a major problem for us here as a society in the United States. I kind of thought that fear of death, that fear was the motivation for our fixation on health and beauty particularly, and that the billions of dollars and countless hours that we spent on working out and losing weight and eating organic and stopping smoking, all that was spent out of fear of dying. I think I've changed my opinion somewhat recently. I nowadays don't really think that we spend the billions of dollars and countless of hours on working out, eating organic, etc., because we are afraid of dying. I think we do all of that because we are afraid of getting old. And death itself isn't really all that much of a topic of conversation. Real death isn't much of a conversation anymore. Death for us as a society is, is essentially an abstract concept. Take as one example, the deaths occurring because of the COVID pandemic. Basically, if you factor in the misreported causes of death, already we are at least at a, at a half a million people, 500,000 people, human beings who have already died from the virus here in the United States alone. But as a nation, what has been presented to us to process all of those deaths? Well, essentially up until finally the president, now President Biden and, and Vice President Harris had the uh, commemoration, the ceremony of mourning at the Washington, uh, the reflective pool in Washington, D.C., essentially up until then, all that we had been given to process this massive amount of death was bar graphs. We would see these graphs of the number of people who have died who on, on different days, and we would just see these bar graphs statistics. Other than that, I can only think of a couple of images confronting us truthfully as a nation again with the reality of these deaths. One is a picture that was taken by an unauthorized drone and the person who took the pictures got in trouble for it, but it was a, a, an unauthorized drone that took a picture of the uh, massive burial site, mass graves, on a little island, Heart Island, in New York City. Some of you will remember that, just big open pit and then putting casket after casket in. I've also seen maybe a couple of pictures of bodies in body bags being loaded into refrigerated trucks because space in morgues had been filled. There wasn't enough space in the morgues, and so they had to bring in these refrigerated trucks.
because so many people had died. Other than those images, I can't really think of almost anything that has confronted us with the reality of death in our country, unless we've personally experienced it and and had to deal with it. But for the most part, as a whole, as a society, we are rarely confronted with the reality of death. And consequently, we don't talk about it that much. Unless we read the Bible or gather in church. And if we are doing either of those things, or both, reading the Bible and gathering in church, if we're doing those correctly, death is everywhere. Think about it. Our main unifying symbol for the Christian faith is a symbol of execution, not just death, but painful, humiliating death. The cross is our main unifying symbol. The cross that fills, uh, that, excuse me, that flies from almost every steeple of every church that hangs on almost every chancel inside the church, even adorns the neck or is tattooed on the body of many churchgoers, is a symbol of death. If we wanted the equivalent for our own time, the mild version would be a coffin. So we'd have a coffin nailed to the wall there and hanging or flying from the rafter, from the steeple of the church or wearing it around our necks. But the even more similar symbol would be maybe an electric chair or maybe a hypodermic needle that's used for uh, lethal injection. (laughs) Could you imagine wearing a, a hypodermic needle around your neck as a symbol of what it means to be a Christian. Well, that's what the cross is. Is it any wonder that church attendance in the United States has been dwindling for years? We don't like to talk about these things. In fact, even half a century ago, T.S. Eliot uh, questioned why anyone would willingly subject themselves to the church's story. He wrote in his poem, Courses from the Rock, Why should men, he only wrote about men, why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws, her story for that matter? She tells them of life and death and of all they would forget. But as followers of Christ throughout the ages since Jesus died have emphatically confronted death, We have done so for two reasons, two joyful reasons. One is that Jesus has the power to bring life even after death, life past death. And knowing of that life past death empowers us to live a fuller life now in light of that life. In our main text this morning, Jesus reveals a small glimpse of his power over death. 
In the story that we looked at last week, Jairus, the synagogue leader that we hear again from this morning, Jairus had asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter who was ailing. And Jesus had said he would. Then, as they were about to go and Jesus was going to heal the daughter, a woman came up behind, touched the hem of his outer cloak, and was healed. And Jesus sensed something had happened, and so he stopped to find out who had touched him. Jesus' disciples think that, he's, that, that him trying to find this person is a waste of time because there are hundreds of people crowded around him. But Jesus continues looking. The woman comes forward. Jesus praises her in front of the whole crowd because of her faith and her courage. Wonderful. But we pick that story up again in this morning's story, and we find out that sometime between that moment when Jairus asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter and this exchange with this woman, that Jairus' daughter has died. that it's too late. We don't know how far away Jairus' house was from when he first asked, where he was when he first asked Jesus. Maybe Jesus could have gotten there in time and, and been able to heal her before death, but now it's too late. She's dead. And for us, and a world without Christ, this is where the story would end. And that's exactly what Jairus's friends suggest. In verse 35, your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? He doesn't need to come. There's nothing to do. And yet, Jesus continues. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told Jairus, the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, just believe. When Jesus arrives at the scene, at the house, he confronts a, a, a crowd and a situation that seems for us probably a little too much because we ignore death and don't like to talk about it, but the scene was typical for the time and can still be found in many cultures that confront death openly. In verse 38, we hear, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And I think it's Matthew reports that there uh, were also flute players, which were, was part of the, the grieving uh, mourning process. William Barclay um, helps us understand a bit better the dynamics, some of the dynamics that are at play here. He writes about how Jewish mourning customs were very vivid and very detailed, and practically all of them were designed to stress the desolation and the final separation of death. Immediately after death had taken place, a loud wailing was set up by professional wailers, and so that all people might know that death had struck. The wailing was repeated at the gravesite. The mourners hung over the dead body, begging for a response from the silent lips. 
They beat their breasts, they tore their hair, they rent their garments. When death came, a mourner was forbidden to work, to anoint himself or to wear shoes for three days. They must not travel with goods and the prohibition of work extended even to servants. They must sit with their head bound up. A, a, a male must not shave or do anything for his comfort. He must not read the law or the prophets, for to read those books was considered joyful. He, however, was allowed to read Job, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. Not so joyful. He must eat only in his own house and abstain altogether from meat and wine. He must not leave the town or the village for 30 days. It was the custom not to eat at a table, but to sit and eat on the floor using a chair as a table. It was the custom, and at the time that Barclay wrote last century, still was the custom in some places to eat eggs dipped in ashes and salt. This is what Jairus faced, as well as the emotional devastation from his daughter's death. And yet, Jesus continues into the house, even after the mourners laugh at him for thinking there is anything he can do. And the moment itself, the moment of Jesus revealing his power, is one of the most intimate moments in all of the New Testament. In verse 40, 40 excuse me, we read, after Jesus put out all those who laughed at him in scorn and mockery, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were still with him and went in where the child was. I think it's a, a, a note of Christ's tenderness that he makes sure the grieving mother is with them when the daughter is healed. And he only allows a few of the disciples in with him and with them. This is not meant to be a spectacle. And then, verse 41, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. With the mere, and she, she gets up and even begins walking around. With the mere sound of his voice, Jesus brings life back to this young girl. Jean Calvin, uh, the 16th century reformer, recognizes the significance of Jesus using only words to bring life. Calvin writes, Christ gave a magnificent display of the power of his voice that he might more fully accustom men and women to listen to his teaching, listen to his voice. It is easy to learn from this the great efficacy of the voice of Christ, which raises even to the dead, which reaches even to the dead and exerts a quickening influence on death itself. And notice that Mark goes out of his way to preserve the actual language used, talitha kum, and he even brackets it because he knows not everyone will understand Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up, talitha kum. 
I love William Barclay's take on this. He writes, how did this little bit of Aramaic get itself embedded in the Greek of the Gospels? There can only be one reason. Mark got his information from Peter. The the writer of the Gospel, according to Mark, Mark, was getting most of his stories, we know, from Peter. Peter had been there. He was one of the chosen three, the inner circle, who had seen this happen. Barclay writes, and he could never forget Jesus' voice. In his mind and memory, he could hear that talitha kum all his life. The love, the gentleness, and the caress of it lingered with him forever, so much so that he was unable to think of it in Greek at all because he could only hear it in memory in the voice of Jesus himself, in the very words that Jesus spoke, Talitha Kum. And then, and the last little bit of sweetness to this whole story, we hear Jesus told them to get her something to eat. She must be hungry after, after dying. In this story, Jesus reveals just a glimpse, but it is a glimpse both of his awe-inspiring power to bring life past death and the heartwarming tenderness of his love. The odd twist in this story is that for this moment at least, he wants it kept a secret. He gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about what happened. Why not? We don't know for sure. Jesus doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't give us any specific indication. I think the most likely answer that I've come upon and read up on is that it was just too early in his time. Jesus came to earth to reveal the fullness of who God is, who we are, and the ways of God for us human beings. Jesus came to reveal the fullness of the way that we are not only to love God, but love one another and care for one another. Jesus didn't come merely to heal us of our illnesses and relieve us from our fears. If word had spread this early in his time of public teaching that he could even give life after death, People would have done everything they could to get to him to be healed, but they wouldn't care about one another to any greater degree. I think Tom Wright, the British theologian, contemporary theologian, uh, helps us to see this story within the larger one. He writes, Jesus was starting a revolution And he was indeed bringing God's healing power. But his aim went deeper. These things were signs of real revolution, the real healing that God was to accomplish through his death and resurrection. Only if we see Jesus' movement in all its dimensions, including the political ones, will we understand that behind the intense and intimate human dramas of each story, there lies a larger and darker 
theme to which Mark is repeatedly drawing our attention. Jesus is on his way to confronting evil at its heart, its very core. He will meet death itself, which threatens God's whole beautiful creation. And Jesus will defeat it in a way as unexpected as this healing. In that moment, however, for that miraculous event, there will be no command of silence. Now that Jesus himself has died and been raised to new life, he no longer commands us to be silent about his power, but rather to tell the world. Jesus wants the world to know about the full revolution of God, that this life before death isn't the only life, that life with God continues on after this life, and that all that is true and good and beautiful about the life to come can be experienced even in part now. And those are experiences that we are to work toward and share even now in this life. Knowing that Jesus has the power to bring life past death empowers us to live this current life in the light of the next. Paul put it this way to the followers of Christ in Corinth. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Sleep is often referred or is a, is a metaphor for death. And he says that we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the imperishable must clothe itself with the Im- for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that has been written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Therefore, Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, because this is true, stand firm. Let nothing move you here and now. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord here in this life, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is why we talk of death in the church. Death reminds us that this life is not everything. There is life with God past death, and that life informs this life. I've often thought that if this is it, If this life is all there is, then why care about anybody? I mean, literally, why not just do and get whatever you want to do and get? If this is it. But our scriptures in the spirit of Christ remind us that there is life beyond this. That beautiful picture, vision that Isaiah was given on the mountain of the Lord of a feast for, of rich food for all peoples. 
the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. God will swallow up death forever. That is a beautiful picture of the truth that death has died in the death of Jesus and that the life to come has already begun in part. And therefore, we do not need to fear death itself, nor being mocked for believing in life in God's dominion after. Rather, we confront death face to face, knowing that the power of Christ is stronger than death and that Christ empowers us to live truly even now. Thanks be to God.